Well, hello, Christ Community Church. It's good to be with all of you here in St. Charles and Bartlett, Blackberry Creek, DeKalb. I hope you're having a good weekend. Well, I grew up in this area. And uh, when people ask me, you know, why'd you never leave? Why'd you stick around? And, you know, you could have gone other places, experienced life in other parts of the country or the world. I usually give them the safe answer, you know. My family's here. My wife's family's here. I got friends here. It's a, a good place to live. But you want to know the real reason? Deep dish pizza and Italian beef. Wonders of the world. Now, I know every region has their specialties, but in my opinion, none can compete with Chicago. I grew up down the street from a Portillo's, and I ate there at least once a week growing up. Uh, my standard order was a beef with mozzarella, uh, dipped, extra gravy on the side, and if the paper wasn't soaked through, send it back, try again, okay? And if I was in a good mood, I'd get a combo, you know, big old sausage right there in the beef because I care about my health, okay? <laughs> you treat your body good, it'll treat you good. Get, get that? Now, once you've gone that far, there really is only one way to finish a Portillo's meal, and that's with one of these, a chocolate cake shake. <laughs> Unbelievable, okay? They take their standard milkshake, and, which is pretty good on its own, and then they take one of those gigantic, incredible pieces of chocolate cake, and they blend the two together. Oh, my goodness. Oh. Sometimes you get the little, like, pocket of frosting stuck in the straw, and you got to suck a little bit, little bit harder, you know? But it is worth the extra effort for the burst of flavor right there at the end. So good. So good. You see, Portillo's does not want you to have to choose. Uh, you want a beef or you want a sausage? We can do that. Uh, you want a, a piece of cake? You want a shake? Well, why not have both? For them, it is not an either-or proposition. It is a both-and situation. Well, today we are beginning a new teaching series here at Christ Community Church called Both And. And in this series, we're looking at different attributes of God that at first glance don't seem like they should go together. It feels like you're going to have to choose one or the other. You know, how can God be both a warrior and a peacemaker? How can God be jealous, requiring worship of people, and also be humble? How can God be all-powerful and sacrificial at the same time? Is God near or far? Is he inclusive or exclusive? Does he give or does he take away? We're going to be tackling all these questions and more over the next eight weeks. Now, the reason this series is so important is because what we think about God really impacts everything. Uh, my favorite single book on the attributes of God is this one. It's called The Knowledge of the Holy. Short little book, but it packs a punch. It's by a pastor uh, named A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor in Chicago in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, and it is really, really profound. Let, let me read to you what uh, Tozer says about what we think about God. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. It's an interesting idea, isn't it? I mean, many of us, we, we don't worry too much about what we think about God. You know, God's kind of a mystery. Who really knows what he's like? You know, it might be interesting to ponder what, what God is like or have conversations about it. But really, you know, like you've got your ideas about God. I got my ideas about God. And you know, as long as those things inspire you, they help you become a good person, you know, it, it moves you when you need it, I mean, that's, that's what really counts, right? Well, Tozer seems to think that your ideas of God are really important, that, that it matters that you get it right. And, and here's why. He says, we tend by a secret law of the soul 
to move toward our mental image of God. That's a very profound thought. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What we think deep down that God is like, that shapes us. Whatever we think is the ultimate reality, the source, the heart of the universe, that is going to determine how we live. Whatever we think is the highest good, whatever we admire most, we're going to build our lives around that. We're going to imitate that. We become like what we worship. And so that's why Tozer says what we imagine when we talk about God is the most important thing about us. Interesting. That's the reason we're doing this series. If we want our image of God to be something that shapes us well, we've got to be sure that it is a full, robust picture of who God is. We don't want a one-dimensional image of God where we flatten him out and you know, make him predictable. He fits into a box and he can never surprise us. We won't, don't want a disjointed view of God. You know, he's got all these you know, characteristics. He's, he's loving, but he's also just, and he's patient, but he, I think he's wrathful too, and, and, and he's you know, high and lifted up, but I, he's near, he's a king, he's a friend. I, I, you don't really know. It almost feels like he's at war with himself, and you don't know how to harmonize it all. But if we want to have a healthy view of God, we've got to see how these different attributes mesh together. We need to explore all of God's surprising combinations. So that's what we're going to do over the course of this series. And our first surprising combination that we're going to tackle is really the big one. It's the one that's at the heart of them all. God is both three and one. Uh, This is what we call the doctrine of the Trinity. It's this. We believe there is one God who exists as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing about the doctrine of the Trinity. It, it is, on the one hand, one of the most difficult ideas in all of Christianity and, and all of the world. I mean, for a lot of followers of Christ, they might say, you know, okay, technically, I, I believe in the Trinity, but like, please do not ask me to explain that because I'm not really sure what it means. Uh, I heard one preacher say that the only thing that uh, parents dread more uh, than answering the question, what is the Trinity, is when they're reading their Bible with their kids and they say, what's a concubine? The Trinity is hard to figure out, and so for a lot of people, it feels irrelevant. You know, if you, you can't really understand it, what difference could it possibly make in your life? Like, it's kind of out there for the, you know, the theology geeks to debate about, but really, for the rest of us, like, what's the point? On the other hand, the Trinity historically is one of the most important beliefs that Christians hold. It, it is right up there with the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It is not an exaggeration to say that this is the defining belief of Christianity. It is the thing that makes Christianity unique. It is so significant that from the very beginning, Christ followers have agreed that if you explicitly denied the Trinity, then you could not be a Christian. No Trinity, no Christianity. Now, I don't say that like some kind of weird rule, like you've got to believe in the Trinity or else. It's not like saying, you know, if you don't eat your supper, you can't have any cake. It's more like saying... If you don't use sugar, you might not actually get cake. It's the essential ingredient. It's what makes it taste good. It's why you like it. One theologian named Michael Reeves, he wrote what is currently my favorite book on the Trinity. I highly recommend it. It's called Delighting in the Trinity. Uh, This is what he said in the introduction to that book. The Trinity is the source of all that is good in Christianity. Neither problem nor technicality, the triune God is the vital oxygen of Christian life and joy. Hmm. So that's what I want to do today. I want to address both of these realities. I want to help us make some sense out of the Trinity that's hard to understand, but I also want us to see how the Trinity is the source of joy and life. And so we're going to approach this topic in two ways. First, we're going to look at the logic of the Trinity, 
And then we're going to look at the story of the Trinity. Uh, some of you, you're logic people. You're, you're thinkers. You want to know how all the parts fit together, the, the what's and the why's and the because's and the therefore's. And some of you, you're story people. You're, you're feelers. You want the plot and the personalities. You, you want to be moved and inspired. Well, here's the thing. You, you shouldn't choose between either the logic or the story, the meaning or the mechanics. It's really more of a, a both and. Huh? Huh? See what I did there? All summer, guys. All summer. Before we get too far, I do want to give you a heads up. Uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity is unique in that there isn't a, a one place in the Bible where it's just sort of laid out in detail. And so that means we're going to have to skip around a little bit in, in what we look at. Uh, normally, we try to stick in one passage of Scripture um, so that it, it's easier for us. But um, uh, I'll tell you when you should turn to the passages of Scripture. And if I mention one that we don't turn to, go ahead and write that down so you can check it out uh, when you're studying on your own after this, okay? So let's start with the, the logic of the Trinity. How does all of this work? Uh, the first thing you need to understand is the doctrine of the Trinity is not a problem, it's a solution. Uh, the pastors and the theologians in the early church didn't sit down and say, okay, let's come up with the deepest, hardest thoughts about God that we can. Okay, he's one and he's three. Yeah, that's it. That'll blow their minds. They'll never figure it out. For millennia, they'll still be trying to figure out what we meant by this. No, what they were doing was they had problems of their own, things, tensions, and, and questions that they couldn't sort out, and the doctrine of the Trinity was the answer to those questions. It, it brought clarity out of confusion. Uh, one of the, the questions was very straightforward. Uh, they were trying to make sense out of what the Bible said about God. Uh, as they read through the, the Bible, if you just did this, if you read cover to cover through the Bible and you just kept a list of every fact about God, uh, first of all, you'd have a very long list, uh, but a few things would sort of rise to the surface. Uh, the first one is this, there is only one God, okay? Uh, hundreds of verses about this. This is basically the message of the Old Testament. Uh, God was trying to say to Israel, there is only one God, don't worship anyone else. Big deal, big deal. Second thing you'd notice is that Jesus is God. Jesus is God, but he's not the same person as the Father. This is kind of the point of the New Testament. Uh, over and over again, we're told in, in various ways that Jesus is God, but uh, Jesus talks to his father. He prays. They, they, they have a conversation. And so uh, you end up realizing they're not the same person. You'd also realize that the Holy Spirit is God, but he is neither the son nor the father. Now, I won't go into detail about that since we just had a, a series on the Holy Spirit, and you can go check those messages out online. Uh, but it's really clear in the Bible, the Spirit is God, but he is different from the son and the father. So that is the riddle. What does God have to be like for all three of those statements to be true and not contradict each other? And the solution to the riddle is the Trinity. Now, there's a more fundamental problem than that that the Trinity solves. And this is the problem the early church was trying to address. The gospel doesn't make sense without the Trinity. The gospel is the basic core message of the faith. It is the good news of how God saves sinners. The problem, though, is that when you sum up the gospel in even the simplest terms, and I mean like the, the terms that a third grader could understand, you cannot explain the gospel without some explanation of the Trinity. And I know this from personal experience. So when I was in grad school, uh, Michelle and I, we volunteered in the third grade class at our church. And we figured, you know, I'm, I'm spending all my days during the week reading this really heady theology. It would be really good if I just got, stayed grounded in telling basic stories to kids, you know, just telling Bible stories. That's going to be good. So one week I was assigned the story in Luke chapter 4 where Jesus goes out into the desert and the devil comes and tempts him to sin. 
Now, I, I won't tell you all the, the details of that story, but spoiler alert, he doesn't give in, okay? So Jesus doesn't sin. And I've got to explain to these third graders, why is this so important? The main point of the story, Jesus is perfect. Why does that matter to you? So I go up to the board, and I, I, I just explain the gospel. And I say, here, this is God. And this, this is us. Now, God, he, he's perfect. He's holy. He never sins. He never does anything evil. He's pure. And us, what about us? We're, we're sin. We, sinful. We do things wrong. We, we're not perfect. We're broken. So, so what happens if we try to come into God's presence? What does he see? Kids go, oh, no. Oh, no, that's not good. We're sinners. We can't do that. That's a problem. And so I say, well, here's the really good news. Jesus, and I draw a cross right here, Jesus comes and stands with us. He, he, he comes and joins us. And so when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. And Jesus is perfect and holy and good, and he pleases God. And that means we can come into God's presence because of Jesus. Uh, that is the gospel. We can't approach God on our own, but because of what Jesus has done, his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can come into the presence of God. So I explain this, and uh, the, the kids, they, they get done, and they go to their groups, and as they're filing out, uh, these two little boys come up to me. Now, if you had said, which two kids were paying the least attention while you taught? I would have said, these two kids. Like, these are the kids in the back, you know, they're making noises with their pits, and they're, you know, messing with people. They come up to me, and they go, Mr. Keenan, we don't understand. And they go up to the board, and they say, you told us Jesus is God. But God is over here and Jesus is over there. How can that be? They're the same. Now, think about this. I, I just gave a very simple explanation of the basic message of Christianity. And they ask a very natural follow-up question that any of us might have thought. And the only way to answer the question is to explain the Trinity. How uh, the Father and the Son are both God and yet different people. Uh, that's how it works. You see, uh, the, the Trinity is not advanced information once you get past the basics. It's what you need to understand to the, the basic message of the gospel. And so even though the word Trinity isn't in the Bible, uh, it, it's not an optional part of the Christian faith. It, even the most basic things start, stop making sense if you don't believe in the Trinity. And so over the years, Christians have agreed on some basic rules about what you've got to say about God in order for the gospel to make sense. And there are really two rules. The two rules are this. God is one in essence and three persons. God is one essence, three persons. Uh, another way of saying it is God is one what and three who's. One God who exists as three equal, completely divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, I, I tried to explain this as best I could to these third graders. I actually went up to the board and I drew, you know, a little triangle and I, you know, I said, this is God and there's the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I tried to, you know, spell it out for them. And, and these two guys are looking at this chart and they go, oh, I get it. One of them goes, it's like this, three different parts, like, you, you know, part God, part God, part God, Father plus Son plus Holy Spirit equals the whole God. And I say, well, not quite. I mean, they're all fully God. And then the other kid goes, oh, wait, wait, no, 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 it's like this, it's like this. It's just one guy, right? Like, sometimes he's the father, and then he turns into the son, and then he switches to be the Holy Spirit. Easy. I say, oh, no, no, actually, they all exist at the same time. There's three persons all the time. And then they go, oh, okay, okay, wait, I, I see it. The father, like, he's God, right? And he makes the other two, and he, they're sort of God, right? And I'm like, no, guys, actually, I know it's really mysterious, it's hard to explain, but they all exist, and they're all fully God. And they go, 
okay, Mr. Keenan, can we have some animal crackers now? (laughs) What these two little guys managed to do is go through all of the Trinitarian errors that the early church identified in the 4th and 5th century between story time and snack time. In like two minutes, they cycled through them all. Uh, There are three basic mistakes that people make when they're trying to explain the Trinity. Uh, They've got technical names, which I'll share with you, but I'll I'll try to put it in some simple language. Uh, The first is called tritheism, or or what I call the God Club, okay? It's the belief that the, the Father, Son, and Spirit are three separate gods They're not united in one essence. Uh, They're more like a group of divine beings who really get along well together. They they like each other's company. They want to pool resources together to do some projects as a team. Uh, It's sort of like uh, Captain Planet, you know, with our powers combined, we are something, the Trinity or whatever. The second error is what's called modalism or what you might call the one-man show. It's that idea that there's one person who just sort of switches. So when, when he's feeling fatherly, he puts on his father hat. When he's going to do something sun-like, he puts on the sun costume. And when he's really spooky and mysterious, he goes into spirit mode, you know? And, and he just sort of switches between those things depending on what he needs. Now, this is a surprisingly common misunderstanding, but it's also really easy to show why it doesn't work. Uh, there are all sorts of stories in the Bible that just fall apart uh, if God is only one person. Uh, the, the simplest one is Jesus prays. Like, what would be going on? Is, is he, like, switching back and forth, heaven and earth and heaven and earth and heaven and earth? Or he's just, like, talking to himself? Or what? Like, it doesn't make sense if the Father and the Son are the same person. So God is not a one-man show. The third error is called subordinationism. It's the idea that there's, like, a ranking between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Like, like the Father is most fully God, and then Jesus is sort of derivative God. You know, he's, he's close, but not quite. And then the Spirit's like a copy of a copy, you know, like, technically he's divine, but not like the Son, and certainly not like the Father. Like, the Father gets to be God, and the other two are his trusty sidekicks. Uh, the most famous version of this from the early church is called Arianism. A guy named Arius taught this. Uh, But in uh, the modern world, the people who usually teach this are Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, They say that Jesus isn't fully God. He's he's close, but he's not quite. Now, most Christians these days would not explicitly teach one of these errors. But a lot of times, when we try to use analogies to explain the Trinity, we accidentally commit one of these mistakes. Uh, So sometimes people say, okay, the Trinity is like an egg. You know, Uh, there's a shell, and there's the white, and there's the yolk, and, you know, three parts become one egg. That analogy is like the, the, the God club. It's the tritheism. It's three things that come together that make one. Uh, or, or people will say, okay, the Trinity is like water. You know, uh, it can be uh, steam, it can be ice, and it can be liquid. You know, three things in one. That's actually modalism, the, the one where, you know, water can't actually be all of those things at the same time, so it's got to switch between the roles. Or, or if someone says, uh, all right, I am a son to my parents, I'm a father to my children, and I'm a husband to my wife. I'm one person, three roles, right? Well, again, modalism. That's, that's only one person switching between these different roles. I could go on. Uh, every single analogy fails at some point. Uh, all are usually better, most of them are usually better at describing an error than they are illuminating the truth. Now, there is one analogy that I like. It is not perfect, uh, but it is better than any of the others that I have heard. And to demonstrate it, I'm actually going to have one of our musicians come back on, on stage. So let's welcome Marcus to the stage, everybody. You see, part of the problem with the other analogies is that they're all visual spatial images. And with a spatial metaphor, it's hard to figure out how three things can occupy the same space at the same time or become one cohesive whole. But you can get closer to that with an auditory, a musical, a herd metaphor. 
So some theologians have compared the Trinity to a musical chord. Uh, So listen, uh, go ahead and play a C chord for us. It's one beautiful resonant sound. And yet that chord is made up of three distinct notes. But when they're played together, those three notes are unified. They occupy the same auditory space. They sound within and through each other. They they mutually indwell each other as distinct yet inseparable sounds, enhancing and filling and resonating with each other in perfect harmony. Now again, at some point the analogy breaks down, but even so, I feel like that points at some truth of how the three persons exist as one unified God. Let's thank Marcus. Now, I realize at this point, some of you are like, this is crazy. Like, this sounds so weird. Like, okay, you're explain- breaking it down, but seriously, that's strange. And I get that. I feel like it's strange too. And, and there's not a lot I can do to make it less weird. Uh, and, but here's the thing. I wonder if that's what we should expect with God. Like, that there are going to be times when, when we can't fit him in our box, that, 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 that we can't really explain him fully. Like, if we could fully explain God, would he really be God? You know, it would almost be more surprising if he always made sense. Plus, in my experience, a lot of true things are are really weird and counterintuitive. I mean, modern science, they tell us that really massive objects bend space-time. You're like, what the heck is space-time, you know? And there's more than three dimensions, maybe 11 or 12, and we just can't perceive them. Or uh, light is both a particle and a wave. And the, the deeper you get into reality, the weirder things become. And so I think that when we encounter something in God, just because it's hard to understand doesn't mean it's not true. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, well, this is interesting. You know, it's intellectually stimulating to sort this stuff out. But what kind of difference does it make? Does it really matter in my life? And to that I want to say, absolutely. Absolutely. But here's where it's helpful to approach this less as a, a logic problem and more as a story. The story of what God has done. And the story of the Trinity begins before the beginning in eternity. Let's turn together to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. Uh, John is one of the four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament. Uh, The first are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And after that, you'll find John. And we're going to read just the first few sentences in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The first thing to notice here is uh, it talks about the word, which is another name for Jesus, for the son. Uh, And it, it says two things. Both the word was with God and that the word is God. And that, in a nutshell, is the riddle of the Trinity. How can someone both be God and be with God at the same time? Uh, This passage is describing a scene with the members of the Trinity just before the dawn of time. Uh, The passage is echoing the most famous line in the Bible, uh, the very first words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you've ever read that story to a little kid, you you know, God made the light and the darkness and the land and the sea and the plants and the animals and the stars and the planets and everything, you have probably been asked the question, well, who made God? And kids don't really like the answer when you say, well, nobody made God. He always existed. And so they repeat the question, just sort of emphasizing different words like you didn't understand them. Like, no, who made God? 
like nobody. And they're like, no, who made God? Nobody. And they grab your face as a true story. Who made God? Even for adults, it's a frustrating thought. Like nobody made God. He always existed. Uh, When the world began, he was already present. And once you get that into your head, the natural follow-up question is, well, what was he doing like before he made the world? I mean, no one else was there. It must have been boring. You know, was he lonely? Do you have like a date circled on the calendar when he was going to make the world and he was just sort of Xing off days when he could finally do something, you know? Like, is that what, why he did it? You know, he needed a hobby, needed a friend. It's hard for us to imagine how God could have, what could have kept his attention without a world to deal with. We're not really good at thinking beyond our own existence. It's sort of like that moment when you're on summer break and you run into your teacher at like Costco or something and you're like, oh my gosh, Mrs. Hertz has a life, you know? <laughs> or like the, the kid who, who asked their parents like, okay, so what were you doing before I was born? And I actually think God's answer is the same as the parents. We were enjoying ourselves. <laughs> I actually think that sentence is literally true. Uh, the father, son, and spirit were enjoying one another. At the Last Supper, Jesus prayed a prayer. It's the longest we have recorded from Jesus' life. And it is this incredible window into the relationship between the Father and the Son. And Jesus knows uh, he's about to die. A few days after that, he's going to be raised. And then he's going to return to his Father in heaven. And so this is what he prays. Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Before the world began. The father and son were together, and their life was full of glory. What was that like? We can't fully know, but I think we get a glimpse of it in the story of Jesus' baptism. This is what it says in Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. It's like the wall between time and eternity opened up and through the crack, the inner life of God comes pouring through. The the spirit descends and the father declares, here he is, here's my son. I love him, I treasure him, I delight in him, I enjoy him. He makes me so happy. That's what God was doing before he made the world. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit were loving each other. And that's the reason why we can say God is love. God is love. If there were no Trinity, we couldn't actually say that. If God were only one person, he would not be love. He he could act in loving ways. He could do loving things. But he would not fundamentally be loving because before the world began, there would have been no one around to love. Love could not eternally be a part of who God is because he would have needed to make the world to become loving. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always had someone to love because they've always had each other. And that means that love is eternal. Love has always existed and it always will exist because God is love. It also means that God is happy. Happy. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they enjoy each other. They delight in each other. I mean, what could possibly provide more pleasure for the father than unity with his son? I mean, what could make the son happier than the fellowship of the Holy Spirit? What would make the spirit rejoice more than beholding the face of the father? 
God is perfectly satisfied in his own inner life. His joy is maximized. Nothing can take away from it. Nothing can be added to it. Fundamentally at the core, before anything else, God is happy. And here's the thing. God doesn't need us to be happy. He's got all that he needs. Whether we existed or not, God would still be perfectly happy. I know that's a humbling thought for sure, but I hope it's a reassuring thought too. Because it means that at the bedrock of reality, behind the universe is joy and joy that nothing can threaten. The foundation that the world is built on is the joy of God and that foundation is unshakable. Think again about that quote from A.W. Tozer. Most important thing about you is what you think about God. What comes to your mind when you think about God? Is it a party? Is it a celebration, a dance, a friendship? I mean, how different would your life be if that was how you instinctively imagined God? What would change if you truly believed that before and behind it all was the God of perfect love and joy? We are drawn by a secret law of the soul toward our mental image of God. Let's look again back at John chapter 1. Let me read it to you one more time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You should draw a little smiley face in the margin next to that, because that's the emotional tone that God has at that moment. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. Here is where we move from eternity into creation. And the question here is, why would God create anything? I mean, God's not Geppetto, you know? He's not a lonely old man who always wished he had a son but never had one. And so he he creates this puppet as a kind of substitute for the son he always wanted. No, the father always had a son, and he was always perfectly satisfied in him. Before creation, God wasn't lonely. He wasn't bored. There there are no needs that God has that the world can fill. So what would compel God to do anything other than just continue enjoying life in the Trinity? Well, no one's come up with a definitive answer on that, but my favorite answer comes from a theologian named Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor in Massachusetts back in the 1700s. And Edwards said that, that God is like a fountain of water, and it's the nature of a fountain to overflow. Like a fountain doesn't overflow because it's empty. It it doesn't flow because it needs more water. It overflows because it has so much water, it has water to spare. It's completely full. And that's what God is like. God is so completely full of love and joy and life and beauty because he's the Trinity that it spills over and gets expressed in creation. That means that God chose to create the world because he was happy. And he wanted to express that to someone outside of him. It's almost like the members of the Trinity said, this is so amazing, we should let someone into this. This would be great. So think about that. It means that the universe is not a meaningless accident. It's not some emanation of some impersonal force. It's not some machine that was just wound up and left to run on its own. People, we're not slaves. We're not some fan club that was made for some insecure deity who needed us for some reason. The world, you, Me, everything else, is a gift of love, the the overflow of the joyous heart of the triune God. God does not love you because he made you. He made you because he loves you. Love comes first. It is the reason we exist. 
And if the world is the overflow of the Trinity's life, it makes complete sense that it is a world full of beauty, full of diverse things that come together in harmony with one another. It it makes sense that the very best things in life are relationships. It, It makes sense that the most satisfying way to live is giving and receiving love because that's what the God who made the world is like. It also changes how we understand sin. Sometimes we imagine God as stingy, you know? Like he could provide us all the joy he wanted, uh, but he sort of keeps it to himself and he makes us jump through hoops, you know? Uh, Check all the boxes and do all these things and keep all the rules and then he sort of begrudgingly lets us have some joy. He'll bless us a little bit for that. Uh, But if this is the case, that's not how it is at all. Uh, God is overflowing. He's generous. He's giving joy away for free. But sin is what we do when we say, oh, God, you're offering infinite love and eternal joy. Um, yeah, that's great. I think I'd rather have porn. Or this pile of money that I've been collecting for myself. Or I actually think, I think holding this grudge on a little bit longer, that's going to make me happy than life with you. Uh, you know, I think getting revenge or, or maybe impressing these people or winning this argument, like that, whatever it is, I, that's going to satisfy me more than what you're offering. That's absurd, but it's what we do. Like God is offering us a gourmet meal, and we opt for the breath mints at the door. And the results of that should be obvious. I mean, if we keep refusing joy and life that God offers, we're going to find ourselves in suffering and death. That, that's the consequence of sin. That's a problem. But here's the good news. Salvation. The Trinity is at the heart of salvation. You know, the most common way people talk about salvation is they say, if, you, if God saves you, you get to go to heaven when you die. And that's true. And they, they, they're excited about that. They say heaven is a place of happiness, a place of joy, a place of pleasure. But a lot of times people don't think past that. They, they don't ask the question, well, what causes the joy? What causes the happiness in heaven? Where does it come from? Well, it comes from the Trinity. It comes from God's own life. The appeal of heaven is being caught up fully into the love and the joy between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And that's what salvation is. It's being brought into the life of the Trinity through Jesus Christ. And that isn't just something that happens in heaven. We get a taste of it here and now. now let me show you that in another, verse, uh, another passage. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we might also share in his glory. When someone surrenders to Christ, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes into your life and unites you to to Jesus, to the Son of God. And that means that what belongs to you now belongs to him. And what belongs to him now belongs to you. So Jesus takes on your sin and all of its consequences, the guilt and the suffering and the death, and he takes them away by dying on the cross, experiencing all of those things for you. But then he gives you all that is his. And and think about what that is. He he gives you his status as the son of God. The the verse says that we are co-heirs with Christ. Let that sink in a little bit. 
It means that the Father treats you as if you were the Son. The first person of the Trinity treats you as if you were the second person of the Trinity. The Father thinks and feels and responds to you as if you were Jesus. And the Spirit comes into your life and helps you experience this. He he pours out God's love into our hearts. And so we feel it and we know it. And it stirs up in us a a love for God in return. And so we cry out, Abba, Father. We we echo the Father's love back to him. The Father loves us with all the intensity with which he loves Jesus. And we love him back, just like the Son has been doing for all eternity. And you see what's happening here? We are brought up into God's own life into this exchange of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you are a follower of Christ, this is your life. The Father is before you, welcoming you as if you were the Son. The Son is beside you, sharing with you all that is His. And the Spirit is within you, stirring up in you love for the Father and the Son. We are caught up into the Trinity. And that's what salvation is a taste in this life, and then forever in eternity. I'll finish with this. Tozer says that the most important thing about a person is what comes to their mind when they think about God. And I think that's almost true. I I think that's one of the very most important things about you. But I think there's something that is even more important. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said about this. I read in a periodical the other day that the fundamental thing is how we think about God. By God himself, it is not. How God thinks of us is not only more important, but infinitely more important. Indeed, how we think of him is of no importance except insofar as it is related to how he thinks of us. I think that's true. The most important thing about you is what God thinks about you. And when God thinks about you, what comes to his mind? Disgust? Embarrassment? Anger? Indifference? No. No. If you are a follower of Christ, you've been caught up into the life of the Trinity, and that means God delights in you as if you were Jesus. It's the same, just as when Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, God God sees you and he thinks, that's my son, that's my daughter, whom I love. In him, in her, I am well-pleased. You make God happy because of Jesus. I want to close in prayer now. But I know that there are some of you here who've never surrendered to Jesus. So you can't say for certain, you know, that that the Father is before you welcoming you or that the the Son is beside you giving you what is His or that the Spirit is moving in you. You you can't say that, but you want it. Maybe you, you came here last week and you heard Matt Forte, you heard Pastor Eric, and they were talking about this life with God, and you think, I I really want that. I need that. Well, here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray right now, and I'm going to start off by praying a a real simple prayer that just expresses that kind of surrender to Jesus, Uh, a a prayer that invites God into your life and and asks God to invite you into his life. And so if that's you, you, if you want that, go ahead and just echo that in your heart with me. Go ahead and just pray along as I pray. So let's pray together. Father, I I want to start off by saying I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry for my sin. I'm sorry for the things that I've done. 
I'm sorry for the things that I knew I should have done and I never did. I'm sorry for the ways that I run away from you, refuse your offer. I know those things are wrong and I am so, so sorry. God, I want to say thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to save me. Thank you for sending your son. I know that his death on the cross, that was for me. That was for my sin. And when he raised from the dead, I know that he was bringing life for me. I know that you sent him to save me. God, I want to say please, please forgive my sin. Have mercy on me. Please come into my life. Send your spirit into me and transform me. God, give me the hope of eternity with you. I am yours. I trust you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.